find the place where your deep gladness meets the world's deep hunger. That's the feeling he said you're looking for. That's the sweet spot where your deep gladness, meaning your your passion, your your fire, your gifts match up with a place where the world is hungry and in need. That's that's the intersection that you're looking for. I'm Krati Mehra, and this is Beyond the Goals podcast. It's my attempt to help you revel in all that life has to offer without pressing pause on your hustle. We learn how to create healthier relationships, a healthier lifestyle, a career that brings us true joy, and a life that satisfies us on every level. Forget the conventional ideas of success and happiness, because we're going to live a life of value and create an impact that speaks to our place in the world. So let's get started. For as long as we live, we are always looking for guidance, for answers, and most of us look for these answers in books or in the ideas and opinions we receive from others. But what if everything we need to know to truly live an authentic, meaningful life, every bit of guidance that may be necessary to get us to that point, what if all of it, all those answers, instructions, if you will, reside within us and they're communicated to us by dreams, little subconscious promptings that come at us out of nowhere at exactly the right moments. And all we need to do to access them is open our minds, listen carefully and with the conscious dedicated intent of turning every such calling into carefully directed action that leads us to a better life. These callings are powerful and they're relentless, something I will let our guests explain further. Hello and welcome back to Beyond the Goals. This is episode number 31 and we are discussing the power of callings with Greg Lavoy, who is something of an expert on the subject. Now for those of you unfamiliar with the concept, let me share a few lines from one of Greg's articles that may help you understand what it is that we are talking about here. Any leap you want to make in your professional or personal life that will bring you this sense of alignment and aliveness is by definition a calling. That calling could be to leave your job altogether or come to it in a new way, to take on a new role or let go of an old one, to make a creative leap or launch a new venture or style of leadership, or to simply make the kind of course correction in your life or work that will make your life literally come true. As Greg shares during the episode, a calling can be about the simplest of things, like where do you want to take a sensitive conversation, Do you confront your loved ones or let things go? Or it could be about something as huge as diving into relationships, quitting jobs, moving to another country. As I said, they're powerful, relentless, and if we were to actually pay attention to them, they can be life-altering in the most wonderful ways. And we discuss this further in today's episode. We talk about how callings can change our lives, how we can be more receptive to them, the tools we can use to identify a true calling and distinguish it from a false one, and how to navigate possible challenges we may encounter along the way. And in case you're not already familiar with Greg's work, here's a little introduction for your benefit. Greg Lavoie is the author of Callings, Finding and Following an Authentic Life, rated among the top 20 career publications by the Workforce Information Group, and Vital Science, The Nature and Nurture of Passion. He's also the former behavioral specialist at USA Today and a regular blogger for Psychology Today. He has presented at the Smithsonian Institution, Environmental Protection Agency, Microsoft, National Conference on Positive Aging, 
American Counseling Association, National Wellness Conference, National Career Development Association, and has appeared on ABC TV, CNN, NPR, and PBS. A former adjunct professor of journalism at the University of New Mexico and former columnist and reporter for USA Today and the Cincinnati Inquirer, he has written for the New York Times Magazine, Washington Post, Omni, Psychology Today, Fast Company, and many others. If at the end of the episode you have any questions, do send them across and I'll get you the answers you need. If you enjoy the episode, do rate and review the show on iTunes and share it on Instagram. It may help others find the information should they need it. Do tag me at mehra underscore krati so that I can thank you for your time. And if you have any other questions or concerns, reach out to me on Instagram or use the contact page on my website. The links will be in the episode description. And now, let's dive into this very fascinating conversation with Greg Lavoie. Thank you uh, so much for making time for this conversation because I am so glad to have you on the show. Uh, you know, I have to also thank you for your books because you have actually answered one of the most frequently asked questions. You know, it's something that people struggle with practically their whole lives. They go through, you know, asking the question, what am I here for? What is my true calling? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? So yeah, so your books are incredible resources. Uh, but uh, may I ask, what took you in this direction? Because I've been curious about it ever since I've read your book. I wanted to ask that question, like, how did you end up going in that direction? Well, let me see. I ran across an Italian writer years ago named Alberto Moravia. And I remember him saying that it was important in life to pursue the one the one problem you were born to understand. And I think this was one of mine ever since I was a teenager. I just had a, a crying need to understand how people create a life that really belongs to them, you know, and, and isn't a knockoff. And I think that was probably motivating me ever since I was a kid. I was always asking a million questions. I became a journalist, of course, so I got to, um, you know, use the curiosity to literally pay the bills. But it also led me in this direction as far back as I can remember. How do you create a life that really is authentic to you and isn't uh, a hand-me-down or a knockoff or something like that? So, so what, according to you, does that life look like? <laughs> what does it look like? You know, it's more, I think, what it feels like. All right, all right. Because it, it can look like a lot of different things. But I think the way it feels is that you're in integrity with yourself. I think that's the, the sense that people, and I think people sense this um, when they're in, in integrity with themselves. And I think they sense it when they're not. They, they know when they're off track with themselves. So I think part of it is just a feeling of being in, you know, what Buddhists call right relationship to yourself. Um, so there's a sense of authenticity. There's a sense of um, being in alignment with who you really are and what you're so there's a match between who you are and what you do okay whatever whatever it is that you do but there's a sense of alignment there um and i remember running across a fabulous quote from a german theologian named frederick buchner he said find the place where your deep gladness meets the world's deep hunger that's the feeling he said you're looking for, that's the sweet spot where your deep gladness, meaning your, your passion, your, um, your fire, your gifts match up with a place where the world is hungry and in need. That's, 
That's the intersection that you're looking for. And I think people feel when they're in that spot and they feel when they're not. Okay. See, this uh, authenticity, living your true purpose, living with integrity, that has like, really been a dominating theme on the show. So we've had like a lot of guests and we have discussed this. And so I will ask you this one question that I ask everyone because it is something I think, again, this is something that comes up a lot whenever we have this kind of conversation. So a lot of people think that when you talk about authenticity, like there are people who get the idea exactly how you've described it. That's how they perceive it to be. But then there are other people who believe that, you know, authenticity, sometimes we use that to escape from a harder life, to run away from the life that we end up with because of our choices, of course. Uh, and, you know, we just like how some people would choose a job or, you know, like they end up unemployed because they are chasing their true vocation or they end up bailing on their marriage because they are, you know, looking for true love or something like that. And, or they're just, you know, tr trying to find themselves. So they often, they would in one-on-one -on -one sessions as well, people would come, come back uh, with what if, you know, I am looking for authenticity, but really it's just my subconscious way of escaping from my life. So how do I differentiate between the two? How do I recognize that before I end up, destroying everything I've built up to that point? Yeah, that's a fabulous question. Uh, so let's see. Okay, so the first thing that comes to me when you ask that is when you say that people are looking to escape a difficult life, a hard situation, whether it's a, a marriage or a career or just the life that they've ended up with. Um, I don't, my experience and the experience, I think of the people that I've interviewed over the years around following their callings, um, authenticity is not an easy path. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? If, if we're contrasting to, to um, you know, people are using authenticity to escape a difficult uh, life or situation, the authentic path is not an easy path. In many ways, I think the inauthentic path is easier for people to follow because it doesn't confront them with who are you really? Um, what is it? What is your true work in the world? What are you going to what are you willing to sacrifice to have that kind of an authentic life? Um, I think those are often harder choices than, like, I come from a family business, okay? My path was laid out in front of me before I even got into this game uh, by, th by three generations. It was a family business. I and my two brothers were expected to go into it. Um, none of us did. Um, and as a result of that, all three of us were cut out of my father's will. Okay. <laughs> okay. So that highlighted for me at a pretty early age some of the hardships that can ensue from following my own path. You know, so I'm just, um, you know, the easy path would have been to follow the, the family business, to do the thing that was expected of me. Um, the difficult thing was not doing what was expected of me because it wasn't true to who I was. Um, I could not picture myself behind that desk that my father, grandfather, and great-grandfather all sat behind. Um, in back of the this big leather chair was a shield and two crossed swords. It was all just very, very uh, intimidating, and, uh, uh, but it wasn't me. And, and here's part of the tragedy. It wasn't my father either. After World War II, he was pressured by his dad, my grandfather, to go into that business. My father um, 
to the core of him is was a scientist and he wanted to be a chemist and his father pressured him to go into the family business and he um i think he suffered that that was a that was a hardship for him to have to live and he was very successful at it but to have to live with um a career that was not really who he was i think that was a a terrible hardship for him um not that authenticity wouldn't have been but anyway um and this isn't to say that people don't use this search for my authentic self as as a dodge um, to get away from uh, difficult situations um, in exactly the way you described it. But I just want to take issue with that following a calling and following authenticity is an easier route than right. um, doing what's expected. So, but we but we cannot you know, like reduce it to or simplify it to the extent where we can say, oh, if you're following the authentic path, things are going to get very difficult for you. Or if you're following the authentic path, the things are going to get easier. For you. We can't really say anything like that because I think it would vary from person to person, right? Yes, I, I do. And I think of Joseph Campbell, who's the mythologist that gave us the hero's journey. Um, and uh, he said that people have this expectation that if they follow their callings, the doors will all swing open and the bluebirds of happiness will sit on your shoulder and um, life will be easy and it won't. And he was very clear um, in laying out that his steps of the typical calling, the hero's journey, which starts with a calling, he was very clear that it's a, it's a tough way to go. And it's understandable why most people would want to turn off the receivers and not even hear what their authentic self is saying to them. And by authentic self, by the way, I just want to clarify, I'm not necessarily talking about the great big calling. I'm not talking about the, the burning bush. Yeah. You know, I'm talking about all the little tiny calls that are part of everyday life, the little urgings um, to pick up a book on the bookshelf or the, the promptings that tell you how how to respond to somebody who's saying something to you, what the, the honest response is. Uh, you know, I just want to articulate that my approach to callings and authenticity is is a in the very small steps. It's not the great necessarily the great big ones. So I don't want to set up this idea that there's this this um, you know this golden statue out there, and you you have to kind of find that. Um, it's in it's in a lot of everyday um, calls and promptings and urgings and even imperatives. Um, so uh, that makes it easier for people to access. Let's put it that way. In any given moment, what is the authentic thing for you to do or say or be? Um, you know, rather than what is my perfect job in the universe? What was I put here to do? Those are good questions, but they're likely to short you out. Right. So calling could be anything. It could be about anything. Absolutely. They are about any kind of choice. So I think we've just kind of elevated this idea of callings and because they are brined in religious overtones. Right. And, you know, the whole the whole terminology comes from the religious world. It's like a calling from God. Right. Right. <laughs> um, or, or maybe in your pantheon, any of an, any of thousands of gods, yeah. you know, but but the, a calling comes from it's a divine subpoena. And it's not. 
you know, it's it's just not. Callings are requests for a response. That's literally what a calling is. And they come to us all day long. Um, and practicing for the smaller ones is practicing for the bigger ones. So the more uh, we, I think we get used to it, exercising the muscles of responsiveness to our own life, um, to what our hearts tell us, to what our guts tell us, um, to what our intuitions, what our integrity tells us, the more practiced we're going to be when it comes to the bigger stuff. Like, what are you supposed to do with your life? Right. Um, right. Can you give me like an example of this? Um, okay. So let's see. I'm in a conversation with somebody and I am there sharing something very vulnerable with me. And I hear a voice in the back of my head saying, what is the best way to respond to this? Do I just give them advice? Do I just listen? Do I ask them if they want help? Um, what is the most authentic response for me? That's a little tiny calling is how to respond to the call of a friend or a beloved coming to you with something very difficult. Um, same thing also goes if they're coming to you with something confrontational. It's like there's a voice that goes off in my head that's saying, be careful here. How you, how you respond, this is going to matter. Everything that comes out of your mouth is going to matter here. Um, what is the what is the kind thing to say? What is the useful thing to say? Um, what is the honest thing to say in this moment? So there's, there's a, I, I, I describe it as a voice in the back of my head, but it's kind of an ongoing narrative for me is um, looking for the ways that I'm supposed to respond to the things that day-to-day -day life throws at me. Um, let me see. So, so that's, that's an example, and that's the level at which I'm encouraging people to look at callings and authenticity and things like that is um, the, the small daily calls, not the great big, um, you know, burning bush variety. So another example of uh, ascertaining calls in the small daily variety, um, and this again is the level at which I am always encouraging people to think about these things. The category is song lyrics that you can't get out of your head for weeks. And I, it seems like everybody has had some version of this. I remember reading, um, I can't remember the author's name, but she writes about novels about uh, relationships. And she says, I can always tell what my husband is really thinking by the tunes that he absentmindedly hums in the car. Okay. And um, I remember the first time I noticed this for myself and realized in a sense that this was also a kind of a call was that I was about to make a, a, um, a desperate decision to quit a job out of frustration. And for a, about a week, right around that period of time, I kept hearing this one line from The Wizard of Oz, okay? And it was, if I only had a brain. Um, and then I stopped and I realized this was calling me to pay attention because I wasn't thinking it through. If I only had a brain, I wasn't, wasn't using my head. I was just using my gut. I was angry. I wanted to quit. I hated my boss. Um, I wanted out. It was a toxic work environment. And I wasn't thinking it through. I had no plan B. And so my unconscious, or, you know, depending on what your belief system is, you could call it God or the soul or the spirit, was sending me a message to think it through. And the way it was doing that was this, this uh, little 
tape loop getting stuck in my head, um, telling me I, I, I'm, I don't have a brain, I'm not using my brain. That's a calling. Um, and again, the level at which I'm always telling people to, to consider this stuff. You know, don't don't wait for some great big voice from on high. Um, listen to the little intuitions in your head and the song lyrics you can't get out of your head. And, um, you know, or things like look at the patterns that have established themselves in your life. That's also a form of calling is like a lesson you've endlessly had to learn or um, mistake you continually make or the kind of partner you always seem to get into relationships with or even just, you know, the section of the bookstore. You always go into first when you walk into a bookstore. What is that about? You know what I mean? You're always going to the cooking section or you're always going to um, uh, philosophy or whatever. There's a calling embedded in that pattern. So that's another way I encourage people to look at calls is, what kind of patterns are setting themselves up in your life? All right. So, so like callings are contributing to choices or could potentially contribute to in a positive way, the choices we make in our daily life, be it something small or something big. So how can we use these callings to, A, uh, first of all, like how can we become more conscious of them? And B, how can we use them to improve the quality of our life and to make choices that at the end of the day, take us into a direction that is, better for us on all fronts? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a great question. My, my sense is that the point of callings is to improve the quality of your life, okay? Th th that's really what they're about. They're about um, um, helping you connect with your deepest self or your highest self. Uh, goes by a lot of different names, but the point is the, the deepest quality of life. Um, and that doesn't, again, necessarily mean easy um, or socially acceptable uh, or is going to necessarily please your parents, for instance. Um, I've made plenty of decisions based on what I believed were callings that were contrary to what my parents would have had me do. You know, uh, starting with the kind of career I chose. They wanted a doctor or a lawyer. Okay. I, I became a writer. And they're like... How are you going to make a living doing that? Turns out I have. <laughs> yes. um, that's, you know, the, my callings were contrary to the, you know, the, you know, something my parents would have wanted for me. So I think it's important to realize that really what um, authenticity is about is creating a quality of life for you um, in the deepest sense, not not the socially acceptable sense necessarily. Okay. Um, but the way to get at these things is turn the receiver on. Okay. Okay. You know what I'm saying is you need, I think it's important to have some kind of practice uh, in your life. And the point of the practice is to strike up a conversation with yourself. Okay. Okay. So that you're hearing the, the calls that are coming to you. You're hearing them at all. You're sensing them. You're feeling them. You're knowing them. Um, so that requires a practice like journaling or meditation or contemplative reading um, or belonging to some kind of a group whose members get together for the purpose of waking up, okay? A spiritual group or a women's group or a men's group or a, um, I mean, even a 12-step group, you know? Um, so I think there are, there are ways of turning on these receivers so that you're starting to strike up a, a dialogue with the deep self. 
Um, dream work is one of my favorites. Right. Um, I'm a huge believer in the importance of dreams. Um, and I'm talking about night dreams, not daydreams. Okay. Um, because they are full of information. They tell us what we really know about things, what we really feel about things. Don't sleep through them. Okay. Um, so that's another way of ascertaining, of getting at the calls is being receptive to them. Okay. Uh, and, and the beauty and the curse, if I may add, the beauty and the curse of callings is that they will not give up. That has been my experience as well as my observation. Um, the search party will not retire. And until the last possible minute of life, they will try to pop through into consciousness. It's been my observation. Okay. That is really helpful. But can we go back to uh, what you shared about dream work? Because that's something I'm generally very curious about. So so can you share a little bit of the process and how do you do it? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I wasn't always good at it. So I had to train myself. And that's a pretty straightforward process. Uh, because science, sci and people say this to me sometimes, oh, I know you're a big believer in dreams, but I don't have them. I'm one of those people who doesn't dream. So science tells us that we all dream and up to a half a dozen times a night. Okay, that's like sleep lab studies. We all, it, recall is the issue. All right. So in order to teach myself recall, I just, as I'm going to bed in that few minutes between sleep, uh, awakening and sleeping, I had to just say to myself, um, to myself, to my unconscious, please send me some guidance. I really want help with this or that or the other. And I'm very specific about what that is. I want help with my marriage or I want help with my um, my job or what, what should I be writing about now? Whatever it happens to be, please send me dream guidance. I promise, and this is key, I promise that if I receive a dream, I will write it down the second I'm aware that I have the dream. If I'm woken up at 2.30 in the middle of the night and I've got a meeting at 7 a.m. in the morning, I don't care. I promise I will write it down because I'm communicating to my unconscious that I'm trustworthy. Right. That if they indeed send me a dream, I'll take it seriously and I'll, I'll write it. It's actually better in the middle of the night to tape record it. <laughs> just so you don't have to fumble with the lights and the pen and the paper and the whatever, just grab a tape recorder and tape record it. Um, and so it's just, it was a 30 day process roughly of training myself to recall my dreams. And so I write them down and I interpret them and that takes work and takes time because you know, dreams, right? They're like, what the heck? Why, why, why don't they just like think, like movie marquee, just tell me what I need to know. Why does it have to be this really complicated thing? Like I was trying to decide whether to quit my job and I have a dream of throwing a rock through the window of a bank. So that took some fussing around with to understand that my unconscious was saying, don't let the regular paycheck make this decision for you. So I was, part of me was throwing a rock through a bank, which represents money. And I realized that I'm terrified to lose my regular paycheck yeah. and my medical benefits and uh, my pension and all that stuff. Um, and that I was denying myself my truth because I was afraid of money. And my dream was saying, you need to think bigger than that. Throw a rock through the window of a bank. Um, and it's like, well, that, that can be confusing for people. What does that mean? And you have to work at it a little. 
yeah that's interesting but how do you make sure because this is i know that i'm expecting it to be an exact science and it is not obviously a lot of it will depend on your interpretation of things but then how do you make sure that what you're following is your true calling after all yeah that's a critical question because the yeah the psyche can traffic in all kinds of um fake news yeah. as we call it now <laughs> and um so again i think part of this is the more that we practice things like dream recall or journaling or things like that the more we start to trust our own intuitions and we start to be able to discern truth from falseness in here in our in our psyche um so practice is part of it but this is a really good question because part of discerning anything from a dream to a uh, relationship, whether this is right or wrong for me, or a career or a calling, um, is the work of discernment. And that's kind of stringy, sticky work, is figuring out, is this a true call or a false? Am I interpreting this dream correctly or incorrectly? Is this my soulmate or is it my fantasy, which is going to fade in the, in the harsh light of you know, everyday relationship? And you need to be able to spend some time doing the discernment work. And discernment is a spiritual uh, practice. It's in all the spiritual traditions have some version of um, discerning the truth or the falseness of um, a call, for instance. So you need to spend some time really asking yourself, does this, like with a dream, we'll just, since we're talking about that, um, what I look for in trying to, pull apart dreams and understand what they're trying to tell me is, where is their oomph? Okay. And by oomph, I mean, what part of the dream has real emotional impact for me? All right. And what, what parts of it are, because a lot of it is like, oh, that's kind of interesting. But there's always some part of a dream that has uh, clout and really hits me at a gut level. That to me is often closest to the truth. Here's another one. Tears is a really good discernment diagnostic tool. If you, whenever you find yourself close to tears, um, you're close to something vital um, and probably something deeply true for you. And, I, and I'm, the first time I ever got understood this was, I was 15 years old and I, um, one of my musical heroes was a singer songwriter named Dan Fogelberg. And he had a line in one of his songs that said, when faced with the truth, the strongest man cries. And I assume the same for women. But there's something at 15 years old when I heard that, it validated something that I intuited, which is that it's, first of all, it's okay for men to cry. My culture says, not, my gender says, don't do that. Um, but I also realized that he was saying when, when you are close to tears, you are close to something life-giving. There's a quality of aliveness in there. That's one of my diagnostic tools for discerning truth or falseness, is if I'm close to a, a really strong emotional uh, experience like grief uh, or anger, for that matter, I'm close to something really important and I need to dig there. Okay? So um, there's – but the work has to be done. You can't just toss off, well, this dream means that, um, or this calling isn't for me, without really submitting the evidence, whatever that form that takes, to, you know, kind of the adjudication of your, your head, your heart, your gut, your soul. You know, you need to kind of like whatever evidence you're working with, 
um, run it by all four of them and, and let them have a conversation with themselves. And I get it. This is work. Most people don't want to do this kind of self-reflective work. It's like, it's a pain in the neck. It's, um, it's not, ah, I'd rather just turn on the TV, <laughs> order out for pizza. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know? Um, so do you think there are like, there's like a particular mindset or, or like a frame of mind that's more receptive to callings or perhaps there are certain emotions that clutter up the space? Like if, uh, you know, like you said about having conversations with yourself, like some days when I've had a fight with someone I love, I'm just so done with everything. I forget having a conversation with myself. I don't even want to think that day. So like having hostility in your life or having any kind of bitterness. So any something like that, is there something on an emotional level? What does your life have to look like for you to be more open to callings, have a clearer space for them? Um, I hate to say it, but the first thing that comes to my mind is desperation. You have to Despe have desperation or not have desperation? No, you don't have to, but it's often what gets people to, to turn okay. on the receiver. Okay. It's okay. like, I did not expect that. Yeah. But it's, uh, <laughs> I, and I'm just thinking of the um, people that I often see in my workshops. Um, a lot of people are there because their suffering has reached an unacceptable level. Um, they, they really, they've come to, to feel that their work is toxic or their relationships are unfulfilling or their health is unacceptable, uh, the level of health that they have. And there's a quality of desperation, which is actually a good thing because it often propels people into the kind of change they really need to make. Now, granted, desperation also sometimes propels people into things like addictions, which are not necessarily useful um, unless you get to the bottom of them. But but I, that's the first thing that popped in my, in my mind when you asked the question, um, what frame of mind do you have to be in to be receptive to calls? Um, don't overlook the, uh, the desperation piece because sometimes, you know, it's like when you hit bottom, there's only up from there. <laughs> um, of course, yes. And so I've, and in fact, if you were to make a, I don't mean you personally, but I mean you in, in generic. If you were to make a timeline of the growth spurts in your life, uh, as I did just a couple of months ago, just as an intellectual experiment, you would probably find that, as I did, that they are hitched to periods of, um, let's call it disruption, uh, chaos, okay. suffering, that the growth spurts in my life have very, most often, more often than not, been accompanied by upheaval. And so that's one of the reasons why I now look at upheaval through a different lens than I used to. It's like, oh boy, here comes a growth spurt. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I don't necessarily want the suffering portion of the show, but I get it that it is, it is hooked to the potential for growth. And so I dig there. Okay. You know, okay, so I'm suffering. What's the suffering about? What is it telling me? Um, limiting beliefs are another one that I've noticed. The stories that I tell myself. Um, for instance, the pandemic hit the fan and it changed my mind about something that I've resisted for a decade, which is online teaching. I've, I've refused every opportunity to do webinars, for instance, for a decade because I've this is the story I tell myself. I'm a high-touch, low-tech presenter. I don't do webinars. 
And, um, and the, the pandemic cured me of that uh, because the call in the coronavirus for me was, if you want to teach and you want to make an income, you will get on board with online teaching because it's the only game yeah. in town now. Yeah. And if you were actually smart, you would have invested some money in Zoom in the stock market, uh, <laughs> Zoom and, and hand sanitizer. Um, but there again, there was there was upheaval. The pandemic, of course, for a lot of people, upheaval. Yes. And and yet silver linings and growth spurts. And so that's a frame of mind is when you are hurting, uh, there's the opportunity to listen for a calling that's in the pain. Uh, in fact, um, I have, um, the word pathology is fascinating to me. Now I'm thinking of physical suffering as well as emotional suffering. The word pathology means the logic of pain. Okay. Okay. So when I'm in pain. A question that you could ask is what's the logic here? Even if it's psychologic, okay. what's the logic of the word? Literally the word symptom means a sign. That's the etymology of the word symptom. It means a sign. That's kind of like a calling, you know? Callings come to us through signs and symbols and and uh, what is it a sign of? So there's another way of being receptive to the calling embedded in the crisis, if you will, if you want to word it that way. Um, so those are actually really useful ways of accessing what your calls are. But there's also lots of gentle ones. And the frame of mind is simply the willingness um, to hear what you need to hear. Right. And that often takes a lot of work to get to the willingness. Okay, I'm, I'm ready to hear it now. I haven't up until now, but now I'm ready to hear it. Um, so there's a, there's a willingness to, that's in there that you'll feel. That that was incredible, and it's uh, actually you know it's it's kind of not exactly obviously, but it's it's like how we talk about surrender, surrender being the space where things start to happen for you when you because your energy isn't so resistant anymore and it isn't so forceful anymore either. You are simply playing your part and letting the forces come at you as they may. So maybe you know it's it's something I think I'm very like fascinated by what you've shared, <laughs> and it um, it reminds me of something that a lot of a lot of artists say that they create their best work when they're miserable. What do you feel about that? Because so far I've never agreed with it, but I'm not a great artist, at least not yet. So I don't know. <laughs> I'm not exactly an authority on the subject. <laughs> That's interesting. That. People do their greatest creativity when they're miserable, yes. uh, when they're suffering. Think that's true. Although today's like uh, uh, writers like Brene Brown, Elizabeth Gilbert, they have disagreed with all of that. They've said that that's not true. That misery is not a ne necessary element for creativity. So, so yeah. <laughs> what, what do you where do you stand on that issue? No, I, I agree. It's definitely not a prerequisite to be a creative person. Um, is to be suffering or to receive a calling to be suffering. Um, I would say that ha being a writer, well, I would even say some of my best work has come from diving into the experience of suffering when it happens. I don't need to be miserable. I don't need to be an addict. I don't need to um, have 
passionate, tragic love affairs and disregard mortal laws, you know, <laughs> in order to be a creative person. But the, but suffering, the suffering is pretty much part of the, the experience of being human. And I have found that some of my most compelling, let's use that word, I like that better, my most compelling writing has come from really doing a deep dive into the an, a particular experience of suffering. Um, because it's, it's very instructive. When I'm happy, I often want to just go out and play Frisbee. You know what I mean? Um, but joy is as important a source of creativity as um, misery, I think. Um, I think it's unfortunate that in the psychological sciences, the vast majority of studies have been done on negative emotions, not positive emotions. Yes. Um, yes. And I think that's kind of unfortunate. Um, and in that way, I agree with Brene Brown and Elizabeth Gilbert. Um, you know, she, Elizabeth Gilbert had a fascinating thing. Maybe you ran across this. Um, she, it was called the Curiosity Driven Life. She, she had somebody in one of her um, audiences say, I hate your guts. You've ruined my life because you're always talking about you need to find your passion. And I can't find it. And, and you're making me feel like crap. And um, and so so Elizabeth went back to the drawing board and and she came up with this um, presentation that's um, she said, I take it back. Forget about the passion driven life. Go for the curiosity driven life um, and see what unfolds for you is just like, what are you fascinated by? Um, here's another frame of, you know, uh, frame of mind that you can be in that might draw callings to you. Follow your deepest curiosities your fascinations, your interests, um, and see where they lead you. Um, and I think there's something wonderful about that in terms of just, just the creative arts, if nothing else, is what are you most deeply curious about? Um, in a sense, that's already a calling, the things that fascinate you, that, or even for that matter, on the other end of the spectrum, the things that infuriate you are also called, like what social issues social, cultural, political issues, get the hair up on the back of your neck. Not everything will do that to you, but certain ones will do that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, the mistreatment of animals does that to me for, for whatever reason. And it explains why I am called to volunteer at the dog pound once a week. Okay. Um, I want to act on this call to care. I don't want to just like send money to an organization or, um, you know, fume privately in my office when I read something egregious in the newspaper. I want to do something about it. And of course, callings require that we do that. They require that we, um, you know, put ourselves to the test and actually take an act, enact the calling. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's incredible. That is so useful and actionable. And so, so when like, this was what I was going to ask you before I went down this route <laughs> was what a lot of incredible, you know, ta incredibly talented people have mentioned this, that sometimes when musicians have said that when they're driving, a tune would fly into their brain and they would have to pull over and write it down. And, you know, poets have said that they would be working and then suddenly they, they would be hit with, you know, some words would be floating in their head. So they say that you have to seize those ideas right away or you will be left with nothing, or you that idea will go away. It won't be yours anymore. So do you agree with that as well? Is that like a calling and you need to act on it right away? Yes. 
my gut reaction to that question is yes. Um, and that's a great example. And it actually reminds me of the, the dream work we were talking about earlier. You need to seize upon the dreams when you become conscious of them. Because, you know, dreams, they're like spider webbing. They're just like, they'll just dis disappear. Uh, and uh, you need to get to them when the call comes. You need to at least write it down. Um, you know, doing something about it may come a little later, but you need to get the dream down so that you have material to work with. That's like your version of the tune that comes into your head while you're driving. Um, yes, I think you need to pounce on them. Um, not that they won't come back. Um, if, it's, if it's a really powerful calling, it will come back in some form. It may not be the same tune, may not be the exact same dream, but what the tune and the dream are getting at will probably come back. But you do need to jump on them. That, yeah, that is because I, I know you said that your callings, your genuine callings will not leave you alone. They will keep haunting you. That's right. Uh, now, any given tune might be lost if you don't jump on it. Um, but I think the, 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 the backdrop of any given tune or any given dream is uh, be creative, uh, be a musician, uh, listen to your dreams. The deeper call behind the, the small call um, is probably going to find ways of continuing to come through. Another tune will come through. But yes, jump on them. I mean, they're, you know, I just think of in the most literal sense, you call a friend and um, you're on the phone with them and they say, sorry, I've got another call coming in. Can I put you on hold? Doesn't that annoy you just a little bit? It's like, hey, I was here first. Um, why don't you just let them leave a message? I, I think our callings are kind of, uh, the same. It's like they're a little annoyed or the, the, the source, the, the, whoever it is or whatever it is that delivers our callings is a little annoyed when we put them on hold. Right. It's important to, to honor them and yeah. uh, not put them on. And not, not only that, you, with the, the deeper calls in your life, like um, in your case to be a communicator, right? Or a journalist um, or um a change agent. I'm guessing at some of the deeper calls that might be behind the work that you do. Um, yes. Those you can't put that stuff on hold indefinitely and expect the universe is just going to pocket the affront. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> universe is going to go. Oh yeah. Well, we'll see who's got the last word on this, and they will keep coming back. And the more you ignore callings, the more they, you're going to you're going to force them to turn into wake up calls. <laughs> Uh, this again been my experience as well as my observation yeah. um because the more you ignore calls um you're going to encourage them to turn up the volume and the voltage and in some cases even the violence of the call right they right. will work to get your attention and i think to some degree some symptoms are like that um they are our bodies our souls way of saying um you need to pay attention when, when I get sick, when I get a cold, which I almost never do, it always happens when I'm, I'm stressed out and I'm juggling too many balls. And the, the, the call, if you will, from my psyche is, slow down. This is not a sustainable lifestyle, <laughs> Greg. Um, you know, and uh, I think callings are like that. You can't ignore them with impunity. Yeah. You have a very effective way of getting your message across. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, this was brilliant. This was super helpful. So if everyone's having these 
because everyone has callings, right? It's not specific to someone more vogue or someone not as, you know, spiritual or anything like that. So since everyone has them, what do you think is the reason why people go through lives so resistant to these callings or constantly failing to give them the attention that they deserve? Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah, wonderful question. Um, I want to offer a generous tip of the hat to this, first of all, in responding to that question. Um, not everybody can respond to their callings. Okay. Um, I think, and I've struggled with this mightily uh, in this line of work. Um, to some degree, I think calling, responding to callings is a luxury. It's a thing of privilege. Um, of course. I think there's a lot of people in poverty or people who are in prison or uh, people with mental um, disabilities. You know, just lots of reasons why people don't have access to their callings. They, they will hear them. I think people, everybody across the spectrum receives calls, but the ability to respond to them is not, um, is not something everybody can do. So I just want to honor that there are people for whom um, they just don't have the wherewithal. They don't have the education. They don't have the contacts. They don't have the role models. They don't um, have the permission. I'm thinking of uh, the Taliban in um, Afghanistan bombing girls' schools because they're so threatened by the prospect of girls and women becoming educated um, that uh, that is a serious obstacle to um, uh, responding to the call to be educated uh, and to improve your lot and your quality of life and to serve the world. Um, I don't know what the solution to those problems are. They're complicated, of course. But I just want to honor that those are real obstacles. Okay. Yes, of course. Um, for, the, for the rest of us, the obstacles are more fear-based, I think. Um, the fear of what your calling is going to demand of you. Um, you know, I, I, like a lot of people, have been called to quit jobs to stay in integrity with myself. And the loss of regular paycheck is n- not a little thing in this world. Um, the, the loss of the comradeship at work. I, my, one of my big calls was quit employment for self-employment as a writer. And you, you immediately realize, I miss the water cooler scene. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> um, camaraderie. I miss um, uh, freelance writers have really boring annual company picnics. Let's put it that way. Yeah. You know? And um, and so f- the fear of being lonely uh, stopped me from following that call for five years. I was going to be a freelance writer. I was going to be working from home. It was going to drive me out of my mind. Um, so I had to find ways of um, compensating for that by joining organizations of fellow freelancers, for instance, um, uh, joining a men's group, just finding ways to create community. So the fear of what will be demanded of you, the fear of the sacrifices you're going to have to make, the fear of what your the people in your closest circle are going to think of this, all right? What if they all had expectations that you were going to be a doctor or a lawyer and you become a freelance writer, which is not exactly a plan designed to reassure your parents? Um, <laughs> You know, you're going to hear from people. That's the thing. People are not generally going to keep it to themselves what they think about your plans. Of course. Does this sound familiar to you? 
<laughs> yeah, of course, absolutely does. Anybody with strong opinions and who is determined to live according to their own set of values has had these experiences. Right, exactly. <laughs> and and people are afraid of rocking the boat. They're afraid of being rejected. They're afraid right. of people disapproval. Um, and they're afraid of the um, sacrifices that might ensue from following their calls. For instance, uh, in leaving my job as a reporter to be a freelance writer, um, it's one thing to say I, I let go of a regular paycheck. It's another to acknowledge that not only did I do that, but I went through all of my life savings and then into the red. I was literally on food stamps for a year. And that was really hard. And the temptation to grab at any opportunity to be employed again was very strong. But I knew it was off. I knew in the deepest part of myself that it was um, it was wrong to just get a job, just to have a regular paycheck, and then leave my passions and my integrity on the sidelines. At that point, I, I just simply wasn't willing to do it. And I worked, I did what it took to maintain my self-employed status. And I've been that way for 40 years now. Um, but that's sometimes the kind of stuff that hits the fan when you follow your callings is you may have to make sacrifices you didn't imagine you were ever going to have to make. But the word sacrifice is so interesting. It means to make sacred. That's what the word sacrifice means. It means to make sacred so that the sacrifices you're making on behalf of your calling, for instance, to be a, a podcaster, maybe you could have a more lucrative career, you know, but there's something sacred in the work that you're doing. Um, not just honoring your um, passions and your visions, but your desire to serve the world, I would imagine. And please tell me if I'm overstepping my- No, no, you are, <laughs> you are on point. So there are sacrifices that you're making Maybe you could be working in IT and making 10 times what you earn now, but maybe it's, it would create a life of inauthenticity that would haunt you. What are you willing to give up to, to be true to yourself is a really important question to ask. And no judgment if you decide, I'm not, I don't have the intestinal fortitude to not have a regular paycheck. I've got a family. I've got kids who are in college, whatever. There are lots of perfectly not only perfectly good reasons to say no to callings, but those were also callings. Yeah, To have a yeah. family is a calling, and it needs to be balanced with other callings. There's not just one anyway. And um, there's no shame and there's no failure in saying, um, I need to honor the call I had at 25 to start a family. Uh, or, you know, the call to be a boss in my own business, because all of those people rely on me for their incomes and their family welfare. Right. Um, so I do. What responsibility do I have to the people who I employ? These are really legitimate questions. You know. Yeah, so yeah. hard conversation. Yes. So listening to the calling is not the only thing that needs to be done. Actually, sticking to the path that follows and sustaining it through whatever comes your way—that's the challenge. Right. There was a guy I, I interviewed for the Callings book who was a corporate executive and his real passion um, was to be a painter, abstract painter. So he had these two, these two calls. One of them was about um, ha 
having the income to have a home and a family, which is a, was a calling for him, and it was the way he got to do it. And the other was kind of like his creative calling, all right? And both of them were, were competing for the limited amount of time we all have in a given day or a given life, but he found a way to balance them. So he worked during the day as a corporate executive, and in the evenings, he did painting at least for an hour a day, and he did that for 25 years. So that by the time he retired from the corporate position, the painting had 25 years behind it. He had contacts with gallery owners, he had paintings, he had a portfolio, he had confidence as an artist, and he was able to make a switch to now doing abstract painting. But for 25 years, he did them side by side. Wow. So there's callings are negotiable. That's why I said earlier, this is not like a subpoena. You know, you've got a vote. <laughs> you've got a voice. So they're negotiable. Wow. To have that kind of patience. That's incredible. Ooh. Yeah. yeah <laughs> for me, it's, it's not like financial issues are not the concern. But for me, it's like, because what I do involves putting content out there that people use to guide their next step. So for me, it's like I'm constantly asking myself, am I adding value? What if this advice is wrong? What if I'm causing damage instead of doing good in the world? And that makes the whole oh. thing very challenging. Sometimes you really have to stop wow. and sit with the whole thing. So I can, I, I, well, I get what you're saying. My hat off to you. I, I applaud <laughs> your sensitivity around that because it's, it is a, it's a big responsibility to be a teacher of any kind or uh, you know, somebody who's giving advice to other people. And to ask yourself, what if, what if I'm wrong? That's a really important uh, line of questioning to ask. It keeps you in the, in the best sense of the word humble. Yes, but it, it's easier because we have mentors like you, I think. We have books like yours and we have you know people like you who agree to be on the show. So we learn, we are constantly learning and we're correcting ourselves and hopefully giving only the best of what we've got to the rest of yeah. humanity, I think. So, so yeah. and, and I think, you know, speaking just for myself as a quote mentor, um, to whatever degree I am, I ask myself the same question, questions. I'm sure, you know, yeah. Um, it it um it took me a long time, for instance, in my line of work, to admit that callings are uh, privileges. Um, I had a hard time admitting that um, that it was a, a thing of privilege to have a calling, and I I only really came to that late in the game. Uh, but I had to confront myself quite a lot on that, and I think that's important for anybody in a position of um, uh, mentorship or stewardship. I like that word actually better. Um, yeah. To, to, be, uh, to be a student, for one thing. I think it's important for teachers to also be students simultaneately. Yes, um, and also just to really deeply question, is what I'm doing um, helping people, really helping people? Or is there some way in which I'm inadvertently creating harm? For instance, I've been teaching a workshop recently called, What Does Trusting the Universe Really Mean? That's actually the title. What does trusting the universe really mean? And there was um, an African-American woman on the, one of the calls a couple of weeks ago who said, in the nicest possible way, she said, so trusting the universe, is that really another way of saying white privilege? And I went, oh, my God. Because um, it's easier to trust the universe when you're born white and male and maybe American and the right sexual orientation, the right race, whatever. And it's not so easy to trust the universe when you don't have those things. And so I have to be willing as a teacher to like 
acknowledge that there was truth in that and to reflect on it. Right. Yeah. But (laughs) but when I uh, made the switch to, you know, being my own boss, doing my own thing, and I was working in finance and I made the switch, I wanted to help anyone else looking to do the same thing and actually go through with this. And I constantly people would tell me that you can do this because you don't have to worry about money because you don't have responsibilities, you don't have children. So you can do this. And I would feel bad about it because they were right. I can do it because I don't have those challenges. But at the end of the day, I felt like it doesn't make what I'm doing wrong. It still needs to be said. And anybody who's looking for a boost needs to hear it from me because I'm actually doing it. So even if I don't claim to understand everyone else's story, everyone else's struggle, I could never do that. But I could still share what my experience is. So I I do believe like I get what you're saying. But I think it still needs to be said. Every bit of advice that you've shared still needs to be shared. And there are people who, despite their very reduced circumstances, do end up doing unimaginably, massively amazing things with their lives. So we we can't forget that. So you have to keep sharing your advice. You have to keep telling people to follow their callings because I think it's it's so incredible. If yeah, I think it's it's life changing. So <laughs> right, yeah, and, and you've probably gotten some of this as I have. Um, as I think maybe anybody does who really follows their callings, they get feedback from the universe. They get feedback from the world, from yeah. life, from their their um, the people who know them, and from people who maybe you probably get feedback from listeners. Uh, thank you, that was really useful. Um, I get them in, in letters and emails. I have a whole box. Uh, well, it's not a big box; it's a little box. But I have a box filled with these fabulous love letters from people saying thank you. This helped my life. And it's like, okay, I, I'm remembering why I do what I do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we are all great. <laughs> well, and I, you know, I think at, at some level, I think it's fair to say that all callings ultimately are about service. Even if the calling is just go down in the basement once a week and paint, you know, that doesn't seem like it'd be serving anybody except maybe you, but that counts because if you are in integrity, you're going to have concentric effects in the world, that you're going to be spreading that that experience of integrity outward, and that's going to affect the people that you come into contact with. But ultimately, I think callings are about serving something um, sacred, something sacred. And I think that uh, that's important just to remember that the suffering and the sacrifices you make on behalf of a, any given calling, they're also about helping the world, helping the larger frame of reference. That was beautiful. If there are any resources or any exercises that you would recommend to the listeners that could help them uh, with with what we have discussed, listen to their callings, follow them through. So I have so many of them that I think there's one simple answer to the question. I have resource pages on my website that are everything from articles by Brene Brown and Elizabeth Gilbert to um, strengths tests that you can take, to movies about callings, poetry about callings, articles about callings. Um, and it's just greglevoy.com, G-R-E-G-G-L-E-V-O-Y.com. And I just got a ton of resource pages for people who want to explore this subject more. I will make sure to share that link. And um, if you could only give one advice to the listeners, just one advice, what would that be? Wow, one piece of advice. Um, 
It's like, if you could have one bumper sticker on your car, what would you want to say to the world? <laughs> yeah. um, or you can only have one tattoo. What would the tattoo be? So this is what comes to me. Um, stay in conversation with yourself. That seems to me the key to all of it, the willingness to stay in deep dialogue with your own life um, and find ways of um, reaching down in to, to, to find the gifts and the talents and the passions and the authenticities that want airtime. Um, but there's something about whatever way you do it, find a way to stay in conversation with your own life, whether it's dreams or journaling or um, a women's group or whatever it happens to be. Um, and I just remember there's a Yiddish proverb. That's my um, background is uh, I'm Jewish. There's a Yiddish proverb that says, if you listen down below, you will deserve to hear from up above. Wow, beautiful. And, and I, just, I just love the feel of that. Um, so that would be my, my parting words. Beautiful. That was the amazing Greg Lavoy. If you want to know more about our guest or you want to explore the resources mentioned during the episode, the links will be in the episode description. If you want to dive into similar content, go to my website, kratimehra.com, and there's a whole bunch of them for you to explore. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed creating it. Now, I'll be back next week. Till then, please do take care of yourself.